This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. We're starting at chapter 11, verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is about the one This is what is about the one who has written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. So as we begin, uh, just a couple of announcements to draw your attention to. Uh, first is we have our Christmas party tonight right after the service, so stay for that. It looks beautiful and smells great downstairs. I went down earlier to see if I could snitch something to eat and was quickly shooed away. So um, it's delicious, and the tables are beautiful, and there's lots of food. So please stay with, uh, uh, f- with us for that immediately following service downstairs, where our usual Sunday dinner is. Uh, The second thing is I wanted to draw your attention uh, to the artwork that Abby Jaden did for us. Abby is an artist in our community, and one of the the things that we have uh, worked with her on this Advent season, and this is the third week of Advent, is we've said, hey, these are the scripture passages that we're going to be preaching from throughout Advent. And the scripture passages come from the Revised Common Lectionary. It's a common way of reading through scripture. There's four passages for every week, every day of the week. And churches all around the world use the Revised Common Lectionary as a way of orienting themselves into the biblical story together. And so Abby took the four passages for each week, read them, and then has created works of art reflective of what the Spirit moved in her as she read those. So I want to tell you what the passages are. We're going to touch on all of them in the sermon, uh, but I want you to be listening with an eye towards what you see up here. Uh, So there are uh, two from the Old Testament, two from the New Testament. Uh, Two from the Old Testament are Psalm 146, verses 5 through 10. And Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. We'll come back to those. The two from the New Testament are the one that we just heard, Matthew 11, 2 through 11, and which is also on this sheet of paper that you have. And then James 5, 7 through 11. So all those in some way intersect with the sermon that we're going to hear tonight and with the artwork that is up here. So this is the third week of Advent. And Advent, as we've been talking about, is a season of waiting. Every year we get to talk about how we wait together. We love waiting. We hate waiting. Usually we associate Advent and the idea of waiting with the Advent of Christ's birth. We're waiting for Christ to be born. 
Like it kicks off the Christmas season for us, unless Black Friday did that for you, but it kicks off the Christmas season and we're waiting for Christmas Eve and for Christmas Day. But Advent in the church has also been used to talk about waiting for Christ to return. So there's kind of two levels of waiting that are happening in Advent. So there's that Advent of the people of Israel waiting for the Messiah to come and who Christians affirm came in the person of Jesus Christ. And then there's the Advent of the church waiting for Christ to be revealed a second time. There's two kinds of waiting that are happening in Advent. We've heard from Cameron and from Jonathan uh, preaching some on what it looks like to wait in hope. I'm going to try to do Cameron's illustration that he's used for several weeks now. He said that we anchor ourselves, right? We anchor ourselves in faith of what God has done. And this is me like belaying down something. Am I getting it right so far? Right, and we look towards the future in hope of what we're going to. And we live in this tension of the present moment, anchored in faith in what God has done and looking in hope to what God has yet to do. When I think of waiting and what waiting is like, I think of like the big transitions that I faced in my life. And I don't know about you, but like I tend to build stuff up in my head, like really big. And then when the moment comes, there's kind of a like, is this it? Like, is this the thing that I've been waiting for? Not in like a bad way, but just in like a, I don't know, expected something different. So I'll give you three quick examples from uh, my life. They are all about my family, and I asked none of them if I had permission to share these things. So the first was uh, my wedding ceremony and reception. Like for those of you who are married or who are in that process, there's a lot of buildup to that. There's a lot of planning that happens. Everybody that you know feels like they can speak into that thing for you. If you have hoped to get married for a while and it's just been a long time coming, then you maybe have years of imagining what this day is going to be like. And then you get there and all of this money has been spent. Everything is in place. The people are all gathered. And at least in the wedding that I had and many of the ones I've officiated, like 27 minutes and it's done. And then you're like walking down the aisle again, but now you're married. And I remember thinking at the wedding reception, over chicken fingers, we were classy. (laughs) I remember thinking like, is this it? Like we're married now. And this feels like no different other than like the tuxedo like doesn't feel comfortable. But there was... I don't know what I expected. I don't know what I expected to happen when I said I do and like we kissed and walked down the aisle. But I remember thinking like, well, okay. So what's next? Second one of these happened uh, for me. The second one I can remember is when we brought our first daughter home from the hospital. She just turned 16 this last week. And I remember clear as day when we brought her home from the hospital, we had strapped her into a little car carrier. And there are many folks here that I think have had this experience or are about to have this experience, right? So we strapped her into the car carrier and she slept on the ride home. And so we like get the car carrier out. It was like mid-morning or early afternoon, I think, like when we got home. Like we had the nursery all prepared. We had kids like 
in the time where like co-sleeping wasn't as much of a thing as it is now. So they've had their own room since they were born. And so we like come in the house and the baby's sleeping. And we didn't know much about parenting, but we knew like you shouldn't wake a sleeping baby, right? That's a thing people say. And we weren't sure how to get her out of the car seat without waking her up. So we take the car seat into the living room and we place it down in the middle of the floor. And April and I just back away. (laughs) And we look at each other, we're like, is this it? Like we've had the baby, the things are all ready, and there it is. Just like in the car seat asleep, like what do we do? Like we're parenting now, I guess. She slept really well in her car seat. And no kidding, this is like pro tip for you all who like are doing the parenting thing for the first time. If that's where your baby sleeps well, put your baby in there to sleep. We put the car seat in the crib many nights because she was asleep. And we're like, we're thinking like, we're going to, we're going to like socialize her to the crib and the nursery, you know? So it's like, she's in the car seat, but she wakes up. Oh, I'm in the nursery. And then one day, like we'll lay her in the crib and she'll like wake up, but she'll be like, oh, I know this place. That did not work at all. But if you can get them to a place like where they're sleeping well, you just let them sleep. But I remember thinking like, is this it? Like I thought that like we were going to have this baby and it was going to like be life changing. And it was life changing in some ways, but not with like the big like reorientation that I thought that it was going to be. One more example from my my life. This one's a little bit more recent. Uh, I was very fortunate to have uh, grandparents until uh, fairly recently. So I'm almost 42 years old, and my grandfather uh, just died this past April. He was 100. He would have been 101 a couple weeks ago. And I remember going, flying across the country to Tennessee to be present for his funeral. I spoke at uh, his funeral, and then we went, we did a like a memorial kind of service in the church, in the funeral home, and then we went just the family to uh, the graveside, and we did a smaller service there. And that smaller service at the graveside was 10 or 15 minutes long. It was very short. It was a pastor that like read a few verses from the Bible, and we'd done all of our speaking at the the bigger funeral home service. I remember like as they buried him, we went back to the little condo where family was staying. I remember just like looking around and being like, is this it? Like it's, it's done. The thing that we needed to do in order to bring a sense of closure. And now what? Is this it? I think we ask a lot of these questions. These questions about, is this it? Is this the thing that we've been waiting for or not? Or is it, is it somehow yet to come or did we miss it? This is going to sound like a sermon from 20 years ago for just a minute. And you're going to feel like you're in like an emerging church because I'm going to make a reference to The Matrix. Okay, now The Matrix has been out for 20 years now, so I don't feel like I have to issue a spoiler alert on this. This is on you. My kids just saw The Matrix this summer. They loved it. Riley was like, this is the best movie ever. And like Trinity is her new favorite like hero. 
So the matrix, you have these characters that are in the real world. They're unplugged from the matrix. So they were never part of the matrix. And you remember they're on this big ship called the Nebuchadnezzar and they're searching for the one. And all of the prophecies tell them where to look and what to look for and what to expect and that the one is going to be the one that can liberate them all from the matrix. And it'll draw people sort of awake and they won't have to be enslaved to the robots anymore. And all of the signs point to this guy, Neo. And you remember, they unplug him from the matrix, he gets flushed down the little tubey thing, and then like he's in the Nebuchadnezzar, they rehabilitate him and they wake him up And they're all super disappointed. Like at different points, they're all like, is this the guy? Do you remember when uh, he plugs into the Matrix, they've taught him Kung Fu, right? I know Kung Fu. And they've taught him Kung Fu and Jiu Jitsu and all this kind of stuff. And it, it gets time for them to do the leap. And the leap is this task that's impossible, right? He's supposed to run to the edge of this building. Morpheus does it first. He leaps off the edge of this building and goes way farther than he should go and lands safely on the next rooftop. And so Neo starts to do this. And he's trying to psych himself up. And there's two things that are happening. We're cutting between the scene with Neo and then we're cutting back to the ship where everybody's kind of like watching the lines of code, but they're reading what's going on. And Mouse, one of the little uh, characters there, he's like, like he's going to do it, right? Because he's the one. He's going to make it because he's the one. And they're like, well, nobody's ever made it. They're trying to temper their expectations. Nobody's ever made it on their first try. And he's like, yeah, but he's, he's the one. So Neo runs up. He does it. He jumps. And if you remember, he falls to his computer simulated death. He bounces back up, right? And then Mouse looks at the others and he says, what, what does that mean? And I say, it doesn't mean anything. But he's wrestling in that moment with like, is this the one, the one that we've been waiting for? Like, when does he start blowing up robots? You remember Cypher? He's the guy that like turns on them all, the traitor. You remember when they're all stuck in the matrix and and he's about to like start killing them all. And he tells Trinity, he's like, is he the one? I don't think he is. Because if he were the one, he would have done some sort of miracle right now and he would stop me from killing all of you. Even Morpheus seems to doubt whether or not Neo's the one. He never says it, but you can see it on his face. When Neo says, oh, the oracle told me I'm not the one. And he says, no, no, no. She just told you what you needed to hear. Exactly what you needed to hear. So even though his words say over and over again, I believe in you, you see it on his face over and over again. This seems to be a central question to the human experience. How does one respond when it seems like the thing that we've been waiting for should be over, but our reality doesn't match our expectations? What do we do with that tension, with that dissonance? How do we manage that kind of waiting? We heard just a moment ago in Matthew 11, a similar kind of question come from John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in prison. He'd been put into prison for calling out Herod's inappropriate relationship. And he was going to be beheaded very soon. And he's waiting in this basement prison within Herod's palace. And he sends his disciples, John's disciples, to go to Jesus and to say, are you the one that we have been waiting for? 
Or should we look for someone else? Are you the one, Jesus, that we've been waiting for? Or should we look somewhere else? So even John asked this very deep question. So the disciples of John go to Jesus. They find him gathered with a crowd and they say, our, uh, our master, our teacher, John, sends us to you to ask you, are you the one that we've been waiting for or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus' answer is interesting because Jesus starts to pull from all of these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And he says, I want you to look around and see what you have seen happen. The blind can see, the lame can walk, the deaf can hear, the mute can speak, and the, re- the dead are being resurrected in your midst. He's pulling specifically from two of those passages I mentioned earlier, Psalm 146 and Isaiah 35. In Psalm 146, we get this description of God being a help and a hope to all of those who are experiencing imprisonment and bondage. The psalmist says that God is faithful. God is the one that executes justice. God is the one that feeds the hungry. God sets the prisoners free. God heals the blind, watches over the wanderers, upholds the widows and the orphans. Those are attributes of God. In Isaiah 35, we get this beautiful image of nature being in full blossom and full of fruit, even in the desert or even in the wilderness. Isaiah says that the glory of Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon, these places that are known in that area of the Middle East for being beautiful, big trees, wonderful, abundant fields, that all of that glory of their fruitfulness and their production and their beauty will be found in the desert and water will be gushing forth in places that are dry. And so Isaiah says, be strong. And if you're anxious about stuff, don't be anxious because God's coming to set things right. Everything will be restored. God's coming to save you. Then Isaiah says, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the mute will speak. All of them will be restored. A highway of holiness will appear. A way will appear for the righteous, and it will lead them to God's place, and they will sing and dance along the way. Jesus is saying to John's disciples, look at the signs. Look at the things that have been happening in your midst as you you have come to observe me. And what do you see happening? All of the things that were going to precede the coming of the Messiah. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the mute can speak. What has been foretold is happening in their midst. But it's just not living up to their expectations. See, John and a lot of other folks at that time, they expected that the Messiah was going to come. And sure, those things were going to happen. Those miracles were going to take place. But the bigger agenda was a political revolution. That those that were oppressing the people of Israel would be overthrown. And that freedom would come. Freedom on a national level, not just the freedom for the outcasts. I have a hard time being 
in the present moment. I let myself run away with expectations about things. I either obsess over things in the past, what I should have said, what I should have done. I have won so many fights in my head. Or I obsess over the future, over what could happen or what ought to happen. And the thing is, the past and the future only happen in my mind. What's happening right here, right now, this is real. And I push right here, right now away because I can't get over the past or I'm too obsessed about the future. My expectations are not in touch with the reality that is before me. And those expectations often become a substitute for reality. And I can't enjoy what's happening here and now in this place with you all. Because I'm not here. I'm either obsessing over that thing that I'm anchored in in the past. Or I'm so obsessed about what's going to happen in the future that I can't enjoy this moment on the rope, this tension right now, to look out across the vista that is before me and enjoy this moment of the adventure. Jesus challenged the expectations that people had about John. He looked at him and he said, when you guys went to see John when he was in the desert, what did you expect to see? You'd heard stories about him. What did you expect to see? Did you expect to see a reed that had been shaken by the wind? Did you expect to see a guy dressed in fine clothing? Of course, the answer to these questions were no. You see, the question that Jesus posed to them implied that they were not there to see the kind of prophet whose message changes all the time and just kind of goes with whatever the popular culture says. There were plenty of those kind of prophets. They made a really good living, telling people exactly what they wanted to hear, leaving them feeling inspired and encouraged. There are plenty of prophets that had made enough money off of their prophecies that they could afford fine garments, the trappings of success. You should believe them because of the kind of camel that they rode. That's not actually true. You should believe them because of the way that they dressed. The fine raiment that they had on. That all of the trappings of success would somehow validate their message. And they said, no, you knew that that wasn't what was going on when you went to the wilderness to see John. That's not what you were going to find because you heard about a guy who was living in the desert and he was wearing a clothing that was made out of camel's hair. And his message was the same every time. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's not a very popular message. Change the way that you're living life, because God's kingdom is nearby. And then Christ takes up that same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So why, after hearing that message and seeing that guy, why do they expect somebody different than the Christ who is before them? It was their expectations. They wanted something bigger, something grander, something more powerful. And they couldn't appreciate what Christ was doing in their very midst. You see, our expectations can never be more than a real guess, maybe our best guess. 
but we really miss out when we refuse to live in the moment that has been given to us and to let this present moment reshape our expectations. So how do we wait? How do we wait when we're trying to discern whether or not this is a moment of grandeur, whether this is a moment of significance, or whether we should wait for something else? I think there's three things that we can do. I think we can pay attention, we can recognize the signs, and we can live the kingdom. I think that's exactly what Jesus was telling John the Baptist's disciples to do, to pay attention, recognize the signs, and live the kingdom. Simone Weil was this uh, French philosopher and mathematician and spiritual mystic uh, who lived in the mid-20th century, and she wrote this book called Waiting for God. And it's a series of essays and letters uh, that she wrote over the course of the middle part of her life. And there's one essay in there that is about uh, concentration and study and attention. And she gets a lot out of this idea of paying attention. She says, concentration and effort isn't the same thing as attention. She's a mathematician, so she talked about uh, the hard work that goes into like contemplating a math problem that's really hard. I find most math problems really hard. So like I get it when she talks about like concentrating real hard. Like you look at the math problem and you concentrate and the numbers, they start to move around on the page and you cannot make sense of them. That's my experience. Yours may vary. But when I concentrate really hard on that, it doesn't actually make it any easier. Nothing actually happens. It's when I go away from that problem. When I stop putting in that effort and I let my mind just work, that things start to happen. Concentration is not the same as attention. Attention is a kind of openness. The kind of attention that we need to to cultivate is a kind of openness to God. That God can show us how to pay attention in the present moment, how to be open in this particular moment. God can show us how to properly contextualize the things in the past so that we hold on to what we need to hold on to and we let go of the things that we need to let go of. God can show us and reveal to us how to have hope in the future without obsessing over it and having it detract from this moment right here. That is cultivating the spirit of attention when we center ourselves on God. And this needs to be a daily practice. Just before the service in the lobby, two people were talking and I overheard them talking about like daily quiet time stuff. I'm like, oh man, I'm horrible at daily quiet time. The other person was like, me too. And like, I'm walking by and they're like, that guy's not. And I was like, yeah, I am. Like, I'm one of the worst when it comes to, like, cultivating this daily practice of paying attention. I'm good for, like, three days. And then, like, something else grabs my attention. Usually sleeping and not doing that thing of getting up early in the morning to, like, have a quiet time. But when I do cultivate that time, when I set aside even just ten minutes to sit and be still, it changes the rest of my day. And not in ways that I usually expect. I have a student, and uh, we were doing, in one of my classes, prayer projects. Doesn't that make you want to come, like, take classes from me? Like, I'm going to grade you on a prayer project. So we were doing these prayer projects, and one of the uh, students was uh, reporting back on her project, and she said, 
It was really hard for me because I grew up with a dad that said, start every day with Jesus and every day will be better than the last. And like that just didn't work for me. But I decided to really like dive in for these six weeks and I started every day with Jesus. And you know what? Every day was harder than the last. I was like, ooh, that's good. Can I use that sometime? She's like, I guess. She's really kind of irritated at the whole prayer project kind of thing. But what she said is like, I started to notice that when I spent that time, that yes, it centered me on God, and then God started to reveal to me all of the things that I needed to let go of. And it was better when I wasn't aware of those things. I was like, I know, right? God will do that to you. And she started to see that, yes, every day was better than the last, but not in the ways that she'd expected because she didn't feel peace inside after doing her prayer. She felt troubled. And I said, well, how was the six weeks, though, for you? If you look look at your life now and compare that to your life then, what do you notice? She said, oh, I'm way more peaceful than I was. I'm way more patient. I'm way more kind. I was like, it's interesting how the practice itself is really hard, but the benefits of that practice show up in other places in our lives. I often talk about spiritual disciplines and I compare them to exercise. Now, please take this as a metaphor that I have lived at some points in my life, but I'm currently not living right now. But you can imagine with me, I'm sure. Physical exercise sucks. Those of you that say, oh, I feel great when I work out, you're lying to yourselves and to us. It's not fun. It's not good. It makes you feel tired and sweaty. (laughs) Megan and I will agree to disagree on this one. (laughs) But I will tell you that when I do regularly exercise, though each day I show up, is hard, and I leave feeling more tired than before, over time, I start to notice that I'm stronger in other areas of my life. That when I need to call upon that strength, it's there. And that's the way spiritual exercises work as well. Is that we don't pray every day because we're going to bliss out first thing in the morning and be like these robed monks walking around for the rest of the day. No, we pray so that when we get cut off in traffic, we only use two cuss words. And then over time, we use just the one. And then maybe if we reach a really high plane of spiritual awakening, we don't use any at all. But we see that there's slow, measurable progress that takes place, not in the moment that we're praying, which is often hard and distracting, but in the other areas of our life. That's what cultivating attention is. Cultivating attention on God. The second thing that we must do is we must recognize the signs. You see, we live in this time where the kingdom of God is already here, it's already at hand because Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and was resurrected as we affirm every week when we read the creed. The kingdom is already here, but it's not fully present everywhere. And that messes with our minds. We need to realize, though, that we have a new access to God, that the veil that separated God's presence from us was torn in the temple. And we have access to God through Jesus Christ that we have never been able to have before Christ. 
we need to recognize the power of our prayers. That when we pray, we partner with what God is doing in the world and we have our hearts and our minds and our actions aligned to where God is in the world. And that's kingdom stuff. We need to recognize that we have access to the fullness of the Spirit right now. See, the things that Jesus said and did, he promised that we would say and do. So when Jesus healed the blind and the deaf and the lame and the mute, he entrusted us with that same Spirit, and those things still happen today by the power of the Spirit. But are we recognizing those signs? Or are we like John's disciples saying, I thought it was going to be different? This is it? I'm a follower of Jesus and like, I'm still struggling financially. I still have unreconciled relationship with my parents. I can't find a spouse. This is it? This is what being a follower of Jesus looks like? And Jesus says, look around you and see the work I'm already doing in your midst. The kingdom is at hand, but it's not fully here yet. And so how are we to live? We're to live the kingdom. We're to lean into that already but not yetness of the kingdom of God. And this is weird. It's a strange thing to live towards a reality that hasn't become fully manifest in your presence yet. But we need to resist this sort of passive waiting This idea that, you know, Christ is going to come again. I've got my little, like, spiritual box checked so that when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, like the creed says, I'm going to be good and go to heaven. That's not faithfulness. That's not what we're asked to do. Jonathan's sermon last week said, How are you to wait and hope you're to bear one another's burdens? Do you realize how upside down that is? To come alongside someone else who's hurting and saying, I want to shoulder that with you and for you. I want to take on your suffering. Who does that? I can only think of one group of people throughout the world who have done that regularly, and that's Christians. Hospitals, orphanages created by followers of Jesus to say, we're going to bear that burden. It's not mine, but I'm going to bear it anyway. That's how you live the kingdom. James 5, 7 through 10, asks this question about how do you live in the midst of this tension? And the answer that James gives us, and this is the fourth of those four passages that I mentioned earlier from the Revised Common Lectionary. James says, be patient until the Lord comes again. Just like a farmer waiting for his harvest. I am no farmer. You can laugh at that. That's okay. But I do know something about like growing things from seed. And again, this is one of those things where the expectation is very different from the reality in my experience. Because I make a furrow in the ground. I part the soil. I put seeds in the soil. I cover them back up. I water them. And then wait. Like, I took 15 minutes. I didn't even get my overalls dirty. And now I'm waiting. And what am I waiting for? I'm waiting for God to do the thing that he designed seeds to do and soil to do and water and the sun and all of that stuff. There's a lot going on and a lot is happening. And it takes 
none of my effort and it's completely out of my control. So I watch as I wait. I'm attentive. I want to make sure it doesn't get too wet or too dry. I want to pull up any of the weeds. I want to learn what a weed looks like because I've pulled up stuff that weren't weeds before. I had a friend, neighbor uh, of April and I when we were first married. This is before we were married. Uh, There's this guy named Rufus. And Rufus was in his 70s, and he was married to Edna. And Rufus and Edna were the managers of the apartment complex where April and I lived. And we weren't part of this competition, but some neighbors decided they were going to have a tomato growing competition. This is in Georgia where you can grow tomatoes. And so uh, they were going to have like this tomato growing competition on the back porch of the apartments. And so everybody planted tomato plants in containers. And you're supposed to like cultivate the plant and wait for the fruit to come. And then everybody's going to share the fruit. Well, the tomato competition like got off fast and furious. And so by the end of July, like people were starting to share these like baskets of tomatoes. And in Georgia, it gets really hot really early. So like by the end of July, you can have a lot of tomatoes. Well, Rufus was far and away blowing everybody out of the water with the number of tomatoes and their size. Like he was showing up with these baskets full of perfect red ripe tomatoes. And then it comes out that Rufus had been going to the grocery store. (laughs) I had been buying tomatoes, taking little stickers off of them and putting them in a basket. And we're like, Rufus, man, like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I just, I got impatient. I was like, well, what do you mean you got impatient? He's like, well, everybody started getting tomatoes and I wasn't getting tomatoes. So I thought I would try to help things out. So my tomato plant had all these flowers all over it. So I started like pinching off all the flowers because I didn't want flowers. I wanted tomatoes. Now, those of you who laughed know where tomatoes come from. It's the flower. The flower gets pollinated and then the tomato fruit grows out of the flower. And so by him pinching off all the flowers, he was getting rid of all of the tomatoes he could have had because he was impatient. He didn't let the plant do what the plant was meant to do. He had a role. He could prune that plant, water it, care for it. But he had to let the plant do what the plant was going to do. We have a role in the kingdom of God. We can testify and witness to the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. We can be active in our waiting. But we'll never be able to make the kingdom come in its fullness ourselves. So in the meantime, James says, be patient until the Lord comes like a farmer waits for his harvest. Don't grumble against one another. And remember that when we look at the prophets and their endurance, especially that of Job, we equate their steadfastness with the blessing of God. When we look at people who have been patient in the Bible, we say, God blessed them. So why do we resist the opportunity to be patient ourselves, to watch and to wait with anticipation? So what can we turn to that might help us learn how to wait and wait well? I think that 
there's a lot we can learn about how to wait well if we look at the Lord's Prayer. This is something like a lot of us know. I think everybody in here could probably recite some version of the Lord's Prayer. We'd probably be all on the same page until we got to that line that says, and forgive us of our, and then we'd say like seven different things, and it'd be like, as we forgive those who are dead or trespassers. But like, that's one of the things that people who have had any sort of attachment to the church usually learn early on is the Lord's Prayer. I think it is a treatise on how to wait well. The first half of that, of the Lord's Prayer, has us focus on who God is and has us consent to God's agenda and God's timing for things. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we look to God, our Father, our Father. I don't think it's any accident that Jesus spoke this prayer with the collective we, resisting the temptation to turn this into just a personal relationship with God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We focus on who God is, God's holiness. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look for the signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God right here. And right now, God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The second half orders our desires to correspond to the will of God. Give us this day our daily bread, that which has been apportioned to us. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is instructions on living the kingdom of God now. We're to feast and forgive. That's our job. We are to feast and forgive. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We turn to God and say, God, guide our lives. Give us the power of your spirit to live well now. And then again, we turn back our attention back to God. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord's Prayer, I think, teaches us how to wait. So we are to pay attention. We're to recognize the signs. And we are to live the kingdom. That's how I think that we are to answer that question. What does it look like to wait now? Pay attention. Recognize the signs. And live the kingdom. I'm going to invite those who are uh, going to play tonight, our musicians, back up. As we come to the table tonight, I want to invite you to come maybe with that first attitude or posture, that of paying attention. As you come tonight, the musicians are going to play, and whenever the Spirit prompts you, you can come up here and partake of these elements or go to the station that's in the back. There's gluten-free elements in both places. But I want you to pay attention to the tactile nature of what it is that you're doing. Because we're participating in a meal that we celebrate every week and goes back to a meal that Jesus Christ had with his disciples, where Jesus took bread and he broke it. 
the visceral act of tearing. He broke it so that he could distribute it to his disciples, but he also broke it as a way of saying, remember how my body is broken for you and distributed to you. And then he took the cup, and as he poured the wine into the cup and he blessed the cup, he said, and this wine, this is, this is my blood. And so when you see this wine, you think of my blood, because it was poured out for you. It's the blood of the new covenant, the new promise of reconciliation to God. So as you come up tonight, I want you to pay attention. Pay attention to what it feels like to tear part of that bread off. And think of the tearing of the body of Christ when he was crucified. As you dip it into the cup and you see that bread soak up the juice that's there. And you think of the way that the blood of Christ would have been intermingled with his body, torn and broken. And as you eat of that, pay attention to what it feels like to taste the sweetness, the, the paradoxical sweetness of the sacrifice of Christ that on the one hand is, has so much gravity and weight to it, and on the other hand is so very sweet. So pay attention to the elements themselves. Pay attention to what it is that they represent. Pay attention to what happens in your heart as you're reoriented towards God. As we come to the table, this is the most important thing that we do as we gather each week. We ask God to reorient us through this act of obedience and of submission to Christ. This table is the Lord's table. The invitation is Christ's. All are welcome here. I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer over us tonight, and then you are invited to come up, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Will you pray with me? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.